the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. This past Sunday, the U.S. Attorney General released a memo on the Mueller report, which determined that the Trump campaign did not collude with the Russian government's efforts to sway the 2016 U.S. presidential election in Donald Trump's favor. But Special Counsel Robert Mueller did not reach a determination on whether Trump obstructed justice and attempted to interfere in the collusion investigation, leaving to the attorney general to state that President Trump had not obstructed justice. This ruling had the Democrats voicing their disapproval with presidential candidates Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders, among others, asking to see the full report. Libby Snymer spoke with Ed Unger, co-chair of Democrats Abroad Canada, and Tiana Lowe, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner, about the Mueller report memo. For a long time, I've maintained that the longer the probe went on without there being any indictments of Americans specifically for collusion um, or for conspiracy to collude, the more likely it was that Trump was in the clear. Let's be honest here. At 22 months into a probe, if there's no smoke, there's no fire. And there really wasn't. You know, someone like Paul Manafort has been dealing in corruption and working on behalf of the most evil dictatorships on planet Earth for years. This is nothing new. He was doing this 25 years ago. So the idea that he would get, that he would be facing tax charges and the idea that, that certain lower level members of the administration would be facing process charges, that was all entirely predictable and had nothing to do with whether or not Trump and Putin were conspiring to collude. Ed Unger, how do you interpret these results? The four-letter pay, uh, four-page letter by Barr is not the Mueller report, which runs, I imagine, into a hundreds of pages. <laughs> we have to see a lot more before we can say, gosh, he, he was fine all the time, Mr. Trump was. No, no, no. And we have all sorts of other things that Trump is being investigated on right now. And as, as, uh, as uh, we all both agree on, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And we should have a lot of sunlight on Trump's business practices, on Trump's uh, conflict of interest uh, actions while he's been in the presidency. There's lots of sunlight to be shown. I mean, the secret to Trump's foreign policy is no secret. Trump thinks that foreign policy is conducted via personal relations. And I think that he sort of admired the strong man facade that Vladimir Putin has and thought that he could use being a strong man in turn as sort of his means of negotiating with Putin. Anyone who's followed, who's followed foreign policy for longer than 55 seconds knows that this is exactly not true. And this is how you wind up pandering to dictators. The biggest issue Trump faces legally are likely these campaign payments to Stormy these these payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Yes. The best defense that Trump would have against those is the John Edwards defense, which is I didn't silence them to influence the outcome of the election, but instead to hide it from my wife. However, <laughs> if you look at the timing of the campaign, pay, or if you look at the timing of the payments to them, 
And what AMI and David Pecker have told the Southern District of New York, they said that Trump specifically did it to influence the outcome of the election. So that's the one charge, or those are the sets of charges that I think will land him in the most amount of trouble. If only because it was something that was specifically concealed from the American public to influence the outcome of an election. Whereas Trump being a corrupt businessman, he's been doing that forever, and people voted him in knowing that that's what he does. Uh, I don't don't know (laughs) if he ran on, I'm a corrupt businessman and you should elect me because I'm just as corrupt as everybody else. I don't think that's why people voted for him. But if you think so, that that's you don't think a little bit, you don't think it was a little bit party should should proudly run on that again. Basically, the whole Trump message has been based on lies from his birtherism to his his wealth to just about everything else. And the more that gets exposed, the more people will be wondering just what the heck they got themselves into. Okay, and Tiana? I think the most important thing about any investigations or conversations going forward is what will it change about what we already know? We already know that Trump is a charlatan. We already know that he was a bad businessman. We already know that he defrauded investors. These are all things that the American people knew and voted for him anyway. Maybe Democrats need to get their horses in order and run someone not as uniquely unlikable as Hillary Clinton. I would welcome that. I would welcome being able to vote for someone who is not Trump, who is ran by a major party. But right now, that's not where the rhetoric is. And I think that clinging on to this pipe stream won't be doing Democrats any favors in the long run. That's Ed Unger, co-chair of Democrats Abroad Canada, and Tiana Lowe, commentary writer for The Washington Examiner. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. On Monday, Toronto Mayor John Tory had a face-to-face meeting with Premier Doug Ford at Queen's Park to discuss the possible upload of Toronto's subway system to the province. Representatives of the city and the province agreed last month to terms of reference for the discussion around the possible upload, an idea initiated by Doug Ford during the election campaign. Following his meeting with the Premier, John Tory joined Libby Snymer to discuss this issue and others. It was fine. I mean, these are incredibly, what we were talking about principally was transit. And of course, it's an incredibly complicated issue in two respects. First, it's just complicated to get built the transit plan that we have approved, uh, which includes a whole bunch of projects, the relief line, smart track, uh, waterfront transit, Scarborough transit, Etobicoke transit, and so on. It's expensive and it's it's time consuming. And these things are very uh, detailed in order to plan and design them. Uh, But then what's added to that is the discussion that is going on about this so-called uh, uploading, which would have the province take some more responsibility potentially for the ownership of some of these transit lines on the basis that you could then uh, finance them more easily and build more transit faster. And so um, all of these things are incredibly complicated, detailed, uh, you know, uh, issues uh, and, and proposals. And so we had a productive discussion about them this morning. Or have we resolved every single issue? Of course not. But um, we had a a good discussion about that, and uh, so those are the kinds of meetings that you have to keep having in order to, uh, you know, make sure you get on the same page and stay on the same page. A lot of people are worried about this notion, this uh, proposal for uploading the subway system. Uh, can you give us a sense of when that's likely to happen? Well, I can only give you a sense that we have a process underway where the province and the city of Toronto are sitting at the same table discussing, first of all, what that means. Does it apply to the existing subway and also the new parts? Does it apply to, you know, and what are the terms in which it happens? 
uh, you know, because none of that much has been spelled out. It more amounted to a kind of political slogan that the premier, Ford, uh, ran on and then got elected. So in that sense, you have to sort of respect the fact he did talk about this during the election. So I would say to you, um, I don't think you're going to see in the next few weeks or even the next few months a complete, uh, you know, sort of spelling out of the resolution to all these issues because they're so complicated. But um, I think you're going to see us continuing to talk and there will be issues that arise out of those discussions. And the objective is going to be to try and resolve those issues in a way that is satisfactory. I can just assure you that I won't be sort of signing on to any deal that I believe to be bad for the city of Toronto or for transit employees or transit riders. And uh, at the same time, I, I realize that people really want to see us work together uh, and sit at the table and try and sort these things out for their betterment. And that's exactly what we're doing. If you don't sign on to it, does that make any difference at all? I mean, don't they have the right to do it if they want to? I think, you know, certainly I think most people who understand that cities are the entirely the creature of provincial legislation would know that there's lots of things they can do, just as they did with the reduction in the size of the city council. And, you know, I, I as you know, I took considerable objection to how they went about doing that because they could. Um, but I'm very hopeful that uh, by agreeing to have a process and the process at the, at, at the table that our officials are sitting at with theirs expressly recognizes that the outcome could be no upload. It could be a partial upload or it could be an entire upload. So it has the full spectrum represented there. But I'm just glad we're having those discussions and I, I'm trusting they're going to continue and that we're going to be fully involved in whatever decision. But um, the province has wide powers to do things that affect municipalities. And that's the way it's been since 1867, uh, Confederation. And uh, all we can do is hope that they want to continue to be partners with us in achieving the best result possible, which involves... You know, some water being put in wine sometimes, as we all know, but uh, we'll take it one day at a time. Anything you want to leave us with? No, I just should say to people the purpose of my speech last week, beyond my priorities, which were very clear, because I ran on saying I'm going to keep taxes low, I'm going to get jobs and investment in the city, working hard at that as I have been. We're going to address transit and housing in a meaningful way by getting things built. But I started to open some new chapters last week, because in addition to the stuff we talked about on pedestrians, I said... We're going to have a 10 instead of a 20-year plan to stop dumping sewage into the lake, which I think most people would be embarrassed by if they knew we were doing it. And, for example, we're going to have a full report on how we can take advantage of the winter economy here. I think right now, as much as we all grumble our way through winter, there are ways we can make it more joyful and more productive and get more tourists to even come here as they do in places like Montreal and Denver. And I'm going to have quite a bit to say in the coming weeks about a number of measures which are also on my agenda beyond transit and housing to make sure this city moves forward and stays what it is, which is a globally recognized city now with an unsurpassed quality of life. But that takes all kinds of things you have to do, including stopping dumping sewage in the lake and including pedestrian safety and a whole bunch of other things. And so I'll have more to say about that, and I'm happy to come back on and talk to you about those things as uh, as the universe unfolds. That was Toronto Mayor John Tory in conversation with Libby Snymer. Later in the week, city councillors voted in favour of having the city continue discussions with the province about the future of Toronto's transit. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. An attempt to make things safer for vulnerable road users is underway at Queen's Park. NDP MPP Marit Stiles has introduced a bill to make it mandatory for driving schools to teach what is referred to as the Dutch reach, which means reaching with your right hand to open the driver's side door, which will make you automatically see cyclists and prevent you from dooring any cyclists who might be riding by at the same time. She joined Libby to expand on her idea. 
This is a, a method that's been taught to drivers, as the name suggests, in the Netherlands since the 1970s. And there have been some attempts to raise some awareness around this as a means of preventing cyclists from being doored or slammed when, uh, when uh, somebody opens up their car door. Um, but so far, it really hasn't been something that government has embraced. And so we thought the easiest way to go about this would be to have it enshrined in our driver's education manual and be part of the testing. Is the driver's education manual, is that a provincial thing? It is, actually. And my understanding is it's actually being updated this year. So it's a great opportunity for the government to add this. Um, and, you know, it's also uh, this, this whole issue is really being pushed hard and endorsed by uh, folks like the Canadian Automobile Association and, um, and also lots of the cycling groups. So for example, Share the Road Cycling Coalition is a big backer. So this is a really simple initiative that can have a big impact. Do you have any numbers on how many cyclists are doored? Well, we don't. We don't actually have that many um, examples. We know that there have, and part of that, by the way, is because um, we don't. That kind of data isn't currently being collected, which is really unfortunate. Um, but we do know that, and we we've seen some some years there have been some reports that indicate it could be in the hundreds. I, I think that you know if you look. For example, in the city of Toronto, uh, when I when I posted something on my Facebook page, uh, you know, and I say how many people have actually been doored, um, I don't know too many cyclists who haven't had this experience, sadly. So, you know, and and the and the truth is, of course, anybody who's a driver also doesn't want to hurt somebody who's a cyclist. So, you know, this is a really easy technique. I've been using it myself for the last couple of years, ever since I learned about it, and um, I actually find it really helpful, also in terms of avoiding pedestrians and other cars going by. Do you have any data on how to turn it into a habit is just a physical thing for those of us who've been driving for a long time. Yeah, I guess like anything, you know, it would be really helpful if the government, for example, would be would would also engage in a, in a campaign, in a public awareness campaign. I know that the Canadian Automobile Association um, has plans to do that, and I think that will make a huge difference. So some of it is we have lots of ways to get the information out there, and it is just something that you have to kind of try a few times before it becomes, I think, a habit, and a very healthy habit. In the Netherlands, it has, um, it has been in place, as I said, since the 1970s. People do it all the time, and they, they of course, have a lot of cyclists and have avoided um, many injuries. And it's also been something that's been adopted in state legislatures in Massachusetts and Illinois and the UK. Uh, they're going to incorporate this in their next edition of the Highway Code Driver's Manual. So, you know, it seems like an easy thing. We can at least make sure that our new drivers learn this technique early on and something that we can all learn about uh, ourselves and, and do our best to 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 develop it as a habit. Any reaction from the governing party on this? <laughs> well, I haven't heard anything yet. Um, I will be debating this and bringing the bill forward uh, this week, but then debating it on April 18th. And I'm really, really hoping that the government will support it. So far, it sounds positive. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's such an easy fix. And I should also note, you know, it, it's just part of the package, right? It's part of what we need to do to improve um, our roads and, and make our roads safer for everyone, including, of course, all the thousands of Ontarians who cycle each and every day. So there are other initiatives that the NDP caucus has brought forward, including a, a Vulnerable Road Users Act by my colleague, MPP Jessica Bell. Um, but this is just one small and simple thing that I think can really make a difference, and I'm hoping the government will get on board. That was NDP MPP Marit Stiles. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Omar Cotter spent his first night as a free man on Monday night. 
earlier in the day, an Alberta judge gave the former Guantanamo Bay prisoner a new lease on life in ruling the eight-year war crime sentence issued by a U.S. military court for a grenade attack in Afghanistan is now expired. The ruling means Toronto-born Cotter no longer faces any legal restrictions and can apply for a Canadian passport, travel freely, and communicate with his controversial sister without supervision. Cotter says he's going to try to focus on recovering now that he doesn't have to worry about going back to prison. Security and terrorism expert Ross McLean and former prosecutor and security advisor Scott Newark weighed in on the development. The most important thing in my mind to, to, uh, that people are aware of is that Cotter was only in this situation because he and his lawyers created it. He was eligible for parole. I wrote about it at the time, um, at the point where instead of applying for parole with conditions, which would have been virtually identical to the bail conditions he was on, they launched this appeal in the United States uh, and then asked for bail. And you'll see it report in the media that, oh, he was granted bail. They asked for bail. You have to ask for it to actually get it. And I think that was done as a you know public relations effort because it made him look, oh, gee whiz, the victim, you know, once again, and help facilitate the $10.5 million payoff. Although I think, you know, the I, I don't really have a problem with the outcome, because he would have been finished his sentence last October. Um, I think it's, it is important to note that this case only arose because of the actions of Cotter and his lawyers. And I think it would have been nice if the judge had said, okay, I'm going to give you this order, but, you know, you've been to court half a dozen times now on all of this, so I'm also going to award costs against you and your lawyers in the amount of, oh, let's see, how about $10.5 million? I have great concerns in the macro that we have social justice warrior politicians who are deciding to go into the justice system as social justice warriors. What I'm seeing is if you're a judge and you're going to make a decision these days, your career is going to be limited. Uh, based on based on what is being said and what is going on in the courts right now. This is the biggest concern that I have. And so we're looking at these favors being done behind the scenes for Qatar with the payment. We're hearing these, these allegations about the SNC getting a getting a, a justice uh, thing put into the back of a of a finance bill to help someone out. We're getting the, the, the attorney general kicked out of her job. And shortly after the attorney general was kicked out of her job, one of the principals in the SNC uh, scam who was up on bribing someone for $10 million to change their testimony. His charges got dropped after JWR was taken out. We're not seeing much press on that. So there's a lot going on, I think, that we need to be concerned about just because of the perception. And I think, Scott, whether you agree with me on this or not, the perception uh, is very, very important. The public sees that there's no political interference in these court cases. I actually think, sir, that uh, you touch on an important point about uh, judicial activism. Um, uh, I like to refer to them as the juristocracy. And I think enhanced accountability, independence and accountability should not be irreconcilable concepts. I think if we, uh, frankly, uh, made it a law, I called it the Public's Right to Know the Truth Act, reporting about crime statistics so that you know the people could know what was actually happening. The thing I, I want to make the point, though, to be clear about the Cotter case, uh, the the political interference that uh, that Ross referred to to me that political interference uh, occurred in the uh, behind closed door settlement with uh, nobody uh, seeing the truth. 
in what has happened uh, uh, in his release here, they have they, they have literally followed the pr- existing legal process, and that's something that I think they des- deserves to be recognized. Because not all of the uh, the people like uh, him, uh, you know, they're, they tend to be rather narcissistic. Do I, as I say, I'm relatively okay with the outcome just because of the fact that he would have been released at this point. And we do have legal tools, by the way, called terrorism peace bonds. If the police are of the view that they think that he may commit another terrorism offense, I don't think the evidentiary standard is going to be there. But um, at least on this part of it, our rule of law has happened. But it, at the core of it. Uh, I think those kinds of things erode public confidence in our justice system, and having that confidence is a key component. Ross, is this thing going to go away now that uh, the legal part of it is over? Uh, Well, no, I don't believe so. I I think, and this is just uh, my, call this my speculation and my spidey senses, I think we'll hear more about Omar Qadar and his uh, $10 million, uh, where it went, uh, his sister, and the Boyle trial, I think uh, more will end up coming out. I don't think that some people, once they've got uh, uh, a culture or a mindset to work and live a certain way, many of them can't resist going back to it. We'll have to see on that, though. That's yeah, just and my I think Cotter will uh, you know, potentially still be in the news. It's the reason why they move so expeditiously on this, uh, because contrary to what Ross said that he thought he might come to Ottawa, I think maybe instead what he'll do is he'll uh, uh, get registered and run as a liberal candidate in the next federal election. Security and terrorism expert Ros McLean and former prosecutor and security advisor Scott Newark. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Zneiber brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto phoned to express his disappointment about the great divide in the U.S. and his gratitude for being a Canadian. You know, it's a very sad day for democracy, what is going on in the U.S., I think that uh, this may solve itself in that uh, there's rumors, and certainly this morning, of uh, a recession coming, and therefore that may help uh, uh, dissuade people. But, oh, it is so sad to see the amount of hatred that is occurring in the U.S., and we should be so thankful that we're here in Canada. Barb in Toronto phoned and made it crystal clear her thoughts about U.S. President Donald Trump. Whether he's guilty or not, uh, Trump, he has enough problems that he's caused himself that he's going to be caught on something. The man is pure evil. Tony and Keswick called about the money our federal government paid to the now free Omar Khadr. It just sickens me that our government, basically, this guy has ties to his family, right, to, to Al-Qaeda. And basically, our government probably helped him fund Al-Qaeda with that $10 million that we gave out. But only Canada can you murder somebody, go to jail for a bit, and then come out a millionaire. I mean, I, that's beautiful. I mean, that's uh, I mean, maybe a lot more. That'll help tourism, I think, or help people uh, want to come over here a little more thinking, we go to Canada, kill somebody, and we get $10 million. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jean in St. Catharines, who worked in long-term care but had to take an early retirement due to burnout and is pleased to hear long-term care workers finally speaking up about the violence they face while at work. I spent the last 13 years of my career 
working as an RPN on uh, night shift in long-term care. I took early retirement due to burnout. Um, I worked with CLAC Christ, uh, Union as a Christian Labour Association. Um, and the main thing we were fighting for, and I believe it, they're still fighting for more staff and more government spot in inspections, not to tell them when they're coming. They, they tell them when they're going to come to, to inspect a place. And what happens usually, um, everything's neat and tidy, all the paperwork's in order, and it doesn't matter whether there's a patient in the bed or not. Some, you know, something's got to be done about that. It's no good throwing all this money, dollar after dollar, to these nursing homes because wherever there's a P for private, there will always be a P for profit. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow at the same time when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Michelle Saunders. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. 